Well, hello everyone. Welcome back to another episode of On the Shoulders of Giants, uh, and welcome to a new series that I've decided to do on the subject of hymns. Um, I don't know about you, uh, but I absolutely love hymns. Uh, they're full of rich theology, uh, immersed in scripture, and unfortunately forgotten by the church. Um, so my goal with this series is to take some of these old and beloved hymns and, as the title says, exposit them. Now, what does that mean? Well, to exposit something means to expose or to explain something. Essentially, I want to walk through these hymns line by line and explain each line, the scripture behind it, and any weird words that are in there or phrases that we don't use anymore. I'll also provide a bit of history, some fun facts about the hymn, and anything else that I can find. Um, So without further ado, I present to you expository hymns. The first thing that I want to explain is what is a hymn? What's the difference between a hymn and a regular song? Are all old songs hymns? Are all hymns worship? Well, there are lots of questions surrounding this topic. First of all, the word hymn comes from the Greek word hymnos, which means song of praise. Hymns are a type of song that are specifically written for praise, prayer, adoration, worship, etc. Hymns are poetry uh, that that are recited or sung. Uh, They tend to be more formal, loftier, and more universal, meaning they they focus typically on the attributes of God rather than, than specific or personal experiences that someone might have. Hymns are God-centered, Christ-centered, and cross-centered. And so that, well, there, there are b- biblical examples of hymns that we see throughout Scripture as well. The most prominent hymn in the Bible is, is most likely in Philippians 2, 5-11. through 11. Uh, It's a hymn that focuses on the incarnation, the, the coming of Christ in human form. It was known as the Carmen Christi in the early church, which literally means the hymn of Christ. Uh, In Acts 16, Paul and Silas are in prison, and they were singing hymns to God. The Greek says that they were hymning, hymning to God. So hymns are different than than any worship song that's currently out there. Worship today, uh, and certainly not all of it, uh, emphasizes personal experience. They focus on the Christian's spiritual enjoyment of life under God. Hymns tend to use language that emphasizes mankind's relationship with God, and it it might have a general theme such as as life with God on earth is decent, uh, but it will be infinitely better in heaven. Contemporary worship songs tend to use similar language to emphasize mankind's relationship with God, But this language seriously emphasizes personal experience, and sometimes it can be mistaken for a romantic type of love, which, in my opinion, is a very serious problem. Uh, Hymns also tend to explore God's character and our relationship with Him in great depth and oftentimes much detail. Contemporary songs uh, often lack the theological depth because they use fewer words. Uh, it's what people have called the 7 method. It's the same seven words repeated 11 times. So there are, there are a few differences between hymns and contemporary worship songs today. And there are worship groups that certainly write newer contemporary songs, 
And oftentimes these songs have much spiritual and theological depth. I would encourage you, if you if you haven't listened to these people already, I would encourage you to go listen to Keith and Kristen Getty, Sovereign Grace Music, City Alight, Matt Boswell, and Matt Papa. Uh, these groups, these people, they write new songs, new worship songs, and their music has much, much depth to it. Um, but they also sing old hymns, and they bring these back, and they do a fantastic job with them. Hymns also connect these theological truths to each other. As I mentioned earlier, hymns are, a, are much more theological. Oftentimes, certain verses will emphasize certain attributes or characteristics of God and then move throughout the theme of that as the song continues. For example, uh, verse 1 might be about the Father, verse 2 the Son, verse 3 the Spirit, and verse 4 maybe our standing before them, before, before the Trinity, you know? Uh, it's important to realize this when we sing these songs. Uh, we are connecting, as Chris and Getty once put it, we are connecting theological dots to each other and preaching the gospel to ourselves through worship. So that's a little bit of introduction to the series, and hopefully that helps a little bit and clears up kind of what a hymn is, the difference between a hymn and a contemporary song. And I also hope that you you kind of see where I plan to go with this series. Um, so... Now we get into the fun stuff, the explaining the hymn, the expository hymn. And I want to explain to you one of my, my all-time favorite hymns. Uh, if not, it might be my all-time, like number one favorite hymn. Uh, whenever I sing it, I can't help but, but praise God more and glorify Him more. Uh, I recently preached a sermon at a church, and, and I read the lyrics at the end of the sermon and, and got choked up a little bit. Um, But the hymn is called Before the Throne of God Above. It was written in 1863 by Irish native Charity Lees Smith. It was published in 1866 in a hymnal titled Our Own Hymn Book, which was a collection of hymns compiled by Charles Spurgeon. Now, Spurgeon had a great ability to memorize hymns very easily, and and this one was, was said to be etched into his memory. In his last sermon... On January 1st, 1892, Spurgeon said, quote, Though I have preached Christ crucified for more than 40 years and have led many to my master's feet, I have at this moment no ray of hope but that which comes from what my Lord Jesus has done for guilty men. Behold him there, the bleeding lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace. Before the throne of God above is predominantly based on Hebrews chapter 6, verses 17 through 20, which says, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, uh, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a great high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There's a vast amount of scripture in the lines of this beloved hymn, 
So first I want to read the lyrics and then I'll explain all three verses in just a little bit. Um, so the lyrics read this. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my savior and my God. It's a beautiful set of lyrics. And this hymn is sung from the perspective of the believer. The first line reads, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. And we can find the scripture backing this up in Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, which reads, uh, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The hymn writer goes on to say that there is a a great high priest whose name is love. We know that Jesus is our high priest. Hebrews 4.14 says that. Uh, He says, says, we have a a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. But this high priest's name is love. Here, we, we must remember the deity of Christ. We must remember that Jesus is God. John 1.1, 1, 1, John 1.14, it's clear on this. The word, the logos was with God and the word was God. And then in verse 14, and the word became flesh. But this, this name love is not given to Christ during his earthly ministry but one that rather God is called, the Father is called. In fact, uh, 1 John 4, 8, we read that God is love. God's nature is love. His, his, it's who he is. For God to cease to be love would mean that he would cease to be God. Love is who God is. Now, this, this high priest who, who bears the name love has a mission. And that mission is that he ever lives and pleads for us. And this is, this is straight out of Hebrews 7.25. It says, Christ always lives to make intercession. This, this is his mission right now. It's to go before the Father. It's to pray for us. It's to stand in the breach between, between believers and the Father. And the mission of this high priest is to make intercession for God's people, for, for, for those who, who will draw near to God. And, and, then we get this, this beautiful line about our high priest. It says, my name is graven on his hands and my name is written on his heart. 
This comes from Isaiah 49, 16, which says, Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Think about, think about carving your initials into a tree and then going back to that tree years later, and you can still see the carved initials. That's the picture here. Our names are, are etched. They're engraved and carved into the hands of Jesus Christ, our high priest. And we know from the next line that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid us thence depart. Because Christ is our high priest, whoever lives to, to intercede for us, who has our name carved into his hands, no one can say, leave heaven, you aren't welcome here. The word thence means as a consequence. In other words, no mouth can say, as a consequence of sin, you must depart. This language, this picks up language from Matthew seven twenty three, where Jesus says, depart from me, you who work lawlessness for I never knew you. If you have faith in Christ, Christ knows you. He prays for you. He's interceding for you. Therefore, he will not say, and, and has, and, and no, he will not say, and no mouth can say, depart from me, for I never knew you. And, and what, what encouragement this should give us, right? So that's, that's the first verse. And there's, I mean, there's a lot that we can, there's a lot that we can look at with this. Um, but the second verse, second verse starts like this. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Now you may remember in, in Luke 22, 31 and 32, when Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. When you have turned again, Strengthen your brothers. Satan desires to see us fall. He desires to destroy our lives and is the ultimate tempter. When he tempts us to despair, to be gloomy or discouraged with ourselves, this is what, this is what we ought to do. So when Satan tempts us to despair, he tells us to be discouraged with ourselves because of our sin. Here's what we do. Next line. Upward I look and see him there. You remember uh, when... Stephen is martyred in Acts chapter 7, and as he's being stoned, he looks up into heaven. And this is the account given in Acts chapter 7, verses 55 to 56. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of the Lord, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Not only do we gaze upon Christ, but we see the one who made an end of all our sin. And this is what, this is what Paul says regarding this in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. He says, And you, Christian, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Jesus said on the cross in John 19.30, It is finished. Our debt is paid in full by Jesus Christ. He is the one who made an end of all of our sin. And the next line says, 
because the sinless Savior died. Remember, Christ doesn't have sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin. He's, he's sinless. So because this sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. Well, why are we counted free from our sin? Because God, who is, who is just, Job 5, who is just, remember he's, God is called just. And you, you remember when I said earlier that, that God is love? Well, he is just as equally just as he is love. But, but God the just is, is satisfied to look upon Christ and pardon the sinner. How can this be? God made Christ to be sin, and then God, according to Isaiah 53.10, crushed him. He crushed his, his son. But more than that, the, the, Isaiah 53.10 says that God was pleased to crush him. Why? Why was God pleased to crush him? Because the justice of God is appeased. You remember Exodus 34, 6 and 7, where God says, The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. But you and I, uh, because of our sin, are guilty before God. Romans 3 is explicit on this, especially in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us are guilty. And so, so how can God be just and then, then justify, declare right the sinner? Well, it's because of Christ. Paul in, in Romans 3, 24 through 26 says, We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he, has, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Wow. God did not spare his son so that he might spare those who believe. What a great love the father has lavished upon us. The final verse of this song begins with this line. Behold him there, the risen lamb. John in Revelation 5, 6 says, and, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world has risen from the dead and he's ascended into heaven. The hymn writer has essentially said, look, there's Jesus. He's risen. And this, this risen lamb is our perfect and spotless righteousness. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who, be, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. 1 Peter 1, 18-19 says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with, not with perishable things, such as gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 
Christ is, is our righteousness. And the only reason that we have grounds to stand before the throne of God above is because of the work of Christ on our behalf. His perfect, sinless life, his substitutionary death, his glorious resurrection, and his magnificent intercession. It is on, it is on that ground that we can go before God. And this lamb is the great, unchangeable I am. First, first of all, this highlights the unchanging nature of God. Malachi 3.6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. God does not change. He is what theologians call immutable, meaning that he is unable to change. God cannot change. Hebrews 13.8 says this of Christ, that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will never change his mind. He will never go back on something. He will never rebel against the Father or against the Spirit. He remains the same. And when we see the word I am, the second thing I'm going to say, when we see the word I am, which goes back to Exodus 3.14, when God says of himself, I am who I am, you can also translate this as I am what I am, or I will be what I will be. God is. He, he is unchanging. This, this Jesus is the great I am. He calls himself I am seven times throughout his earthly ministry. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the, right, the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And, and the Pharisees would have known this, and they would have said, he's claiming to be God. And furthermore, Christ is is the king of glory and of grace. King of glory is from Psalm 24, verses 7 through 10. Uh, this, means, this essentially means that God is the most awesome, the most powerful, and, and should be taken seriously. But more than glorious, Christ is also the king of grace. Christ is gracious towards us. The grace of God is one of the most prominent themes in the Bible. Ephesians 2, 4, God is rich in mercy. Ephesians, or sorry, Psalm 86, 15, the Lord is, the Lord is a God, merciful and gracious. Job 2, 13, return to the Lord for he is gracious and merciful. Psalm 116, 5, gracious is the Lord. Over and over again, we see the graciousness of our God. And John 10, 30, Christ and the Father are one. And so if the Father is gracious, so is Christ. The hymn goes on. It says, one with himself. I cannot die. In other words, if we are united to Christ, we have eternal life. We cannot die. John 3.16, those who, who believe in him will not perish, but will have eternal life, everlasting life. Why, why can't we die if we are united to Christ? Why, why, what, does that, what does that mean? Well, it's because our souls have been purchased by his blood. Acts 20, 28 says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, to all God's people in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. On the cross, Christ purchased the souls of all who would believe. And these are the people for whom he intercedes. Because of Christ, our lives are hid with Christ on high. What exactly does, does hid mean? Well, Paul in Colossians 3.3 3 uses this word. 
He says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. What does hidden with Christ mean? We have to understand that Christ not only died for us, but we also died with him. Paul says that he was crucified with Christ in Galatians 2.20. We have died with Christ. We share in his sufferings. And so we are hidden in Christ. It means that our, our old life, the former self, has been put to death. The new life is here. We are new creations, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Being hidden with Christ is being united with Christ. And the hymn finishes with the beautiful line, With Christ my Savior and my God. Paul in Titus 2.13 says, We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Christ is our Savior, the one who has freed us from the bonds of sin and shame, the one who saves us from our sin, who prays for us, who loves us, who cares for us, and he is also the one who reigns over us. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the God of the universe, and we are his people. So just to read all the lyrics one more time, all in full, with all of that being said, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. Praise God for these glorious truths. And I hope that this short study was helpful. Lord willing, we will continue uh, this study on hymns in the future, and we'll unpack more of, of these, these great, great lyrics together in the future. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, if you would like suggestions, or if you'd like to give me suggestions on hymns that you want uh, me to look at, I would love that. Please just let me know. <laughs> Text me, call me, DM me, whatever you want to do. Just, I would love to know what you guys want to, want to listen to. So I look forward to doing this uh, with you all really soon.